welcome to our new high school Sunday school series where we will be covering an overview of each book of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, the goal for this series is that uh, we would come out of it with a comprehensive understanding of how the Bible works together. Uh, we're going to try and cover this in the course of one year, doing an overview uh, roughly of each book of the Bible. Of course, that's going to be roughly because there are 52 weeks in a year, 52 Sundays, 52 Lord's Days, uh, and then there are 66 books of the Old and New Testament. So there will be several combinations along the way, such as First uh, and Second Samuel, that will be one lesson. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah will be treated as one lesson. Uh, things like John's three letters, first through third John, that would be treated as one lesson. So hopefully through those kinds of combinations, we can get through uh, an overview of the entire Bible uh, in, in under one year. And so that will begin today with the study of the book of Genesis. Uh, Genesis is, of course, uh, the first book of the Bible and is in many ways the, the foundational book of the Bible. It's certainly the foundational book of the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is your first major section of your Bible. It's the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, uh, often called the five books of Moses or the books of the law. And because those five books are the foundation of the scripture as a whole, Genesis as the foundation of that could also be said to be the foundation of scripture as a whole. Uh, everything that we unpack from here on out will in some way relate back to this book and to this collection of books. The five books of Moses do uh, a lot of things, but primarily they were written to reveal to us who God is. Uh, a simple way, and this is of course oversimplified, but a simple way to outline the Pentateuch is, is it reveals God. Genesis reveals God as our creator and giver of life primarily. That's the primary thrust of the book of Genesis, but we'll see more about that later in the lesson. Exodus reveals God as Redeemer. Leviticus reveals God as Sanctifier. Numbers reveals God as Protector of his people. And finally, Deuteronomy reveals God as the Ruler of his people. And all five of these books, as we've said, were substantively written by Moses. That is to say uh, that we're talking 99.6%. Uh, to put a number on it, was written by Moses, perhaps a higher percentage than that even. Uh, but we do want to account for several passages where it does look like someone else, perhaps a Joshua or a Samuel or an Ezra, somebody else who was divinely inspired would come along and and, and add or, or edit something like uh, the easiest example is probably the end of the book of Deuteronomy where it records the death of Moses. Uh, and then there are several other uh, what appear to be updates throughout the books that will reference a, an area or, or, or a people that will say, and they are called such and such this day or at this time or what have you, uh, that appear to be not original, though they are divinely inspired and part of the biblical text. Uh, nonetheless, Moses is the primary or substantive author of all of it. Uh, one other brief note about authorship before we get into the book itself. Uh, the dominant view of authorship amongst most professing evangelicals, uh, most uh, mainline churches, 
is really probably a better term to put on it. Uh, most people that, that are going to be publishing Christian books or, or talking about these things popularly is called the JEDP hypothesis. And you just need to be familiar with that and that it's, um, honestly, it's horrendously out of date, academically speaking. It was the popular theory some 30 years ago, and the, the idea is something like this. Um, Moses is not the substantive author of the five books, according to this view, but rather there are four or five different streams uh, of tellings of these stories that were later stitched together by some redactor. Uh, the problems with this view, though, are numerous, uh, and while, while it remains widespread on the popular level, that is, a lot of people that you'll meet may believe this, it has been widely debunked at the academic level. It's not a good theory, and there's three reasons why. One, uh, the unity of the books themselves, as we'll see over the next several weeks, it's too tight. <laughs> it's, it's too tight to legitimately believe uh, multiple authors not related to one another stitched together. Uh, secondly, uh, and concretely, there is zero... I want to repeat that number. There is zero manuscript evidence of these fragments in isolation from one another. They're just making a guess. And then finally, the best reason to reject this theory is because our Lord Jesus himself said that Moses wrote these books. He says in John chapter 5 and verse 20, or excuse me, John chapter 5 and verse 46, if you had believed Moses, you would believe me. Why? Because he wrote of me. Jesus attributes the authorship of these books to Moses. And that, for any uh, born-again Christian, ought to seal the deal. Our Lord says they are written by Moses. And we ought never to be ashamed to say, I believe uh, this because the Bible says so. That is the only sure grounds to believe anything. Uh, moving on, we, we don't know the precise time when Moses wrote Genesis. Uh, obviously, it would not have been during the events themselves as they occurred um, the, the closest one to his lifetime was 430 years beforehand, uh, and many were further back than that. Uh, it's most likely that he would have written the books during the wilderness wanderings, during the events of the book of Numbers as they are marching towards the promised land. And we don't know that for sure, but it is the best candidate. Uh, it was certainly after the escape from Egypt that we'll cover next week. And as such, Moses is writing to accomplish three things. You know, imagine you're you're an Israelite wandering in the wilderness following this man. You've got some questions, and Moses is writing to answer three of those questions. And those are the three questions that we're going to answer as we work through the book of Genesis today. First of all, who is God according to Genesis? Second of all, who are we? And thirdly, and probably most uh, pressing on the mind of the wandering Israelite, but no less relevant for us, where are we going? So who is God? Who are we? And where are we going? And here's the outline of the book of Genesis to help us uh, answer those questions. And we'll see each one of these sections as we work through provides an answer to all three of those questions. Uh, there are some books of the Bible that uh, you just ought to have a, a, a working outline in your head. And Genesis is certainly one of those. And here is the working outline that we'll, we'll move through. Genesis chapters 1 to 11 covers the prime evil history. Genesis chapters 12 to 36 covers the, what we'll call, patriarchal history. And Genesis chapters 37 to 50 covers the Egyptian history. Again, the prime evil history, this is 
the creation account. This is Noah and the Flood. This is the Tower of Babel. This is all of those uh, events. The patriarchal history is uh, his workings with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, and then the Egyptian history is, of course, the famous story uh, of, of Joseph and his brothers. First, we'll start with the primeval history. Uh, a lot of people will tell you uh, that the book of Genesis isn't reliable or that it isn't really that unique because it seems to uh, appropriate, it seems to uh, adapt and modify popular uh, myths from the ancient Near Eastern culture. And usually what they're talking about when they say that kind of thing, that the Bible just stole stories that were popularly told about the time, is they're talking about this primeval history section of the book. Uh, they're talking about the creation account. They're talking about the flood. And there is a kernel of truth in that, not in that Moses is, is stealing stories from other cultures, but rather uh, there is an acknowledgement, generally speaking, that these were uh, popular types of, of stories told in that time. I think what Moses is doing here is he's not just uh, taking popular stories and retelling them for his own purpose. Rather, he's actually uh, interacting with and offering answers to uh, other religions. He's, he's correcting them, you might say. Uh, there is definitely a polemical bent to these books. That is to say, there's an argument being made. Uh, a, a great book to read on this, if you're interested in going further into that idea, is called Against the Gods, The Polemical History of the Old Testament. And that was written by Dr. John Currid, who's a retired uh, professor from RTS Charlotte, and he's also an ordained uh, ARP minister. It's a fantastic book uh, that delves into a lot of these things. But the, to see that Genesis is polemical, you need look no further then Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Already, we're making a, a declarative statement there. We're making a, a worldview statement there. The, the time is not cyclical, as most Eastern religions even today would teach. We, we, we're not in an unending loop just going round and round and round. It's not a circle of life, as it were. No, there is a definite, clearly demarked, beginning and in the beginning what happened is god created the heavens and the earth this is again a, a, a polemical statement saying your stories about marduk and, and these other false gods that got into some kind of battle and and one ripped the other in half and threw his top half into the sky and, and that's the the firmament of the heavens and threw his bottom half to the ground and that's the the sea waters and where they came from that's not how it happened how it happened is god said let there be and there was. He is debunking all kinds of uh, all kinds of prehistoric myths. And, and as a matter of fact, while we're on this topic, I think it's worth noting that uh, the prevalency of these kinds of uh, prehistoric uh, stories uh, that all seem to follow similar, though not identical in any means, patterns is actually great proof of the trustworthiness of Scripture. It, it's almost as if uh, three sons heard these tales from their father, and they dispersed out throughout all the world, retelling them to their sons and so on and so forth, like a game of telephone. Uh, kind of like exactly what the, the scripture says happens with Noah and his three sons on the ark that uh, are then subsequently divided into people's groups and spread throughout the earth. They, they have a, a similar genesis, if you will. How do we know which one of these tellings is the correct one? 
Well, surely the correct one would be preserved. And God has seen fit to preserve the stories of Genesis. He has seen fit to preserve the people of the Hebrews, the, the physical, biological descendants of Abraham, uh, around whom so much of this book is going to function. Uh, we know that they are true because they are the ones that remain. They are the people group. They are the only people group, the Hebrews, that remain uh, from this ancient time period. Genesis 1-11 to will introduce to us, first and foremost, who God is and how he relates to the world. First and foremost, he is the creator of all things. Doubtless, many of you know this from your children's catechism. Who made you? God. What else did God make? All things. Why did God make you and all things? For his own glory. That's our short and simple summary of Genesis chapters 1-2. to These opening chapters reveal a God who is all-powerful and creates all things merely by the word of his power. Those words in the beginning speak to, to, to the fact that there was a time before creation existed, but in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth reveals to us that there was never a time before God. Our God is eternal. So the next question then, who are we? Who are we? We are those who have been made in the image of God. God says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, let me turn to it in my Bible here real quick. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over everything that creeps on the earth. So God says that we are those who have been made in his image, and we've been given authority. We've been tasked with taking dominion over the whole earth, that we might uh, rule and reign as, as his <clears throat> representatives over all creation. That is who we are. That is what we have been made to be. But that is not all of what this section tells us as to who we are. We are also rebels that live under a curse. And we see that as man rebels against God in the, the famous recounting of Genesis chapter 3, uh, a recounting which the Apostle Paul would summarize this way in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 14. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 14. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. He's referring to before the, before the time of the Exodus, before the Ten Commandments. Sin was in the world. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose, whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. And so we see the, the result of, of Adam's fall in the garden is that all of his posterity who proceed from him by ordinary generation, that is, everyone that, that's born in a natural way, inherits the, the results of his sin, inherits this sin-cursed earth. We are a rebellious people. We are born in trespasses 
and sins. That is that is who we are. And we see that the results of that sin, death spread to all men in chapters 4 and 5 uh, of, of this primeval historical section. Uh, we see it in the first murder uh, of Cain killing his brother Abel, but we see it uh, really highlighted uh, in chapter 5 where this there's this refrain over and over again, thus all the days of Adam were 930 years, and he died. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, over and over and over again, because the point that is being made is not merely to record uh, historical truths, though those are, you know, I believe all of the, what Moses is saying here is literally true, literally happened. It's also to hammer home the results of that fall in the garden. Even though uh, God, and that, that is what leads into uh, this compelling statement in Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in all the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually we are those who have been fully permeated by sin it affects every aspect of who we are it affects not just our actions but also our words the way we speak it affects our thoughts the way we think it affects uh, the desires of our heart It, it impacts everything that is that is who we are we are those made to be in the image of God and yet uh, horribly marred and afflicted by sin. And so God, uh, moving on through primeval history, decides that he is going to cleanse the whole earth with a flood and that he will spare only his people, only those who have found grace in his eyes. That would be Noah is the one who is said to have found grace in the eyes of God. And as a result of the grace that Noah finds in God, he and his household are spared the wrath of God. When they are told that the God is going to flood the earth, uh, God tells Noah to build an ark of gopher wood and to collect uh, two of each kind of animal uh, that he might uh, basically start creation over again. And even though God cleanses the whole earth with this flood, sparing only his own people, when they get off the ark, sin persists. The sin was about more than forbidden fruit. It was about more than taking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was what that represented. It was it was a, a, a rebellious heart towards God uh, that got off the ark because Noah and his sons and his wife and his son's wives, even though they had found grace in the eyes of God, yet there was still inlying sin. We see this when Noah uh, becomes a husbandman and and become and and, and and creates a vineyard and then gets drunk off of his wine and and his son mocks him in his drunken state disrespecting his father uh, both both of them have sinned in that instance but the biggest example of remaining sin is actually seen uh, in chapter 11 uh, the last chapter of this primeval history section which is the tower of babel uh, the tower of babel uh, is a really important uh, narrative uh, for our time and it tells uh, of men that had been told, be fruitful and multiply. They had been told directly by God in Genesis 
1, but not only in Genesis 1 when he told Adam, but he told them in Genesis 9, verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He wants them to spread out over the earth. But in Genesis 11, we read that man uh, had his own idea. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower. What are they saying? They're saying, let us make a name for ourselves. God has said to go out into the whole earth as, as his representatives, as, as, as those made in his image, to reflect his glory over all creation. And man has said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to disobey your commands, Lord. I'm going to rebel against my sovereign creator. And instead, I'm going to congregate here in one place, and not make your name great, but rather make my own name great. And God says, that this is only the beginning of what they will do in Genesis eleven six, And so he goes down and he scatters the people and confuses their language. And that's where we're going. We're, 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 we're going uh, to the ends of the earth. We're, we're spreading through the earth. That's, that's where we're going. But then in Chapter 12, we come to our next major section of the book. In this section of the book, we learn more about God, we learn more about ourselves, and we learn more about where we're going. We learn, first of all, that God is a covenant-making God. God has looked on the whole of creation, and he calls one man. He calls Abram in Genesis chapter 12, and he says, Go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. So we learn about God here that he's a God who makes covenants. And he's going to ratify this covenant several other times in Genesis 15 uh, with the covenant-making ceremony uh, that's very instructive, though we don't have uh, time to go into that in detail. He's going to ratify it again in Genesis chapter 17 when he gives the sign of these promises, which is the sign of circumcision, which Paul would say uh, in, in Romans chapter 4 verse 11 was a, was a sign of, of the righteousness that, that Abram had by faith in believing God's promises. Uh, but that's another discussion for another time. But the, the big point here is that we learn that God is a God who makes covenants. And this is also pulling in from uh, earlier sections. Uh, he, he speaks of covenant much with Noah as well. But here it's really hammered in that this is a defining trait of who God is. And we also learn about ourselves that we are his chosen people. We, like Abram, are his chosen people. What is Abram's responsibility here? He's to leave everything. He's to leave everything he's ever known. His, his hometown, his family, all of it. And follow God. 
He's to trust God's promises. He's to believe God's promises. Now, what's God's responsibility? Everything else. God says, I will show you this land. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. God does everything in this covenant. Abram and his offspring, whom are promised even here, are merely his chosen people. We are those who receive those promises by faith. Genesis 15, 6, and this is taken by Paul and James to be the paradigm of of the Christian's relationship with God as well. And he, that's Abram, believed the Lord. And he, the Lord, counted it to him, Abram, as righteousness. So the answers that this patriarchal section, and and there's obviously so much more we could go into, what they give us about this section uh, of Scripture, the answer that they give us to our three questions are, God is a covenant-making God. We are his chosen people, and we are going to the promised land. We are following him to the promised land. That is the the repeated uh, phrase over and over again, through these pages. And we follow uh, through this section, we follow that promise uh, being transferred to to Isaac uh, rather than to Ishmael, and to Jacob rather than Esau. And then in Genesis 37, we get to the closing section of the book, which is 13 chapters long, and I've titled this The, the Egyptian History uh, within, the, within the book of Genesis. And the first question you might want to ask first question that comes to my mind when I look at this is why 13 chapters why such why why nearly a, a a third of the book dedicated to this uh section well it, it's going to be in a, in a large sense um the most relevant section directly anyway to the Israelites wandering in the wilderness it's going to tell them how they got to Egypt in the first place, from which they're fleeing, and, and, and where they're supposed to be going. But I think at a bigger level, what this section reveals to us, what it shows us about our God, is that he is a God who is faithful to his covenants. He is the creator and giver of life. He's the covenant maker, but he's also the covenant keeper. And we see that as we see his, his dealings with Joseph, who's a son of Abraham. We see that he preserves him, that he watches over him, that he makes him great as as he believes and trusts in God's promises, though he was uh, abused and despised, smitten and afflicted by his brothers, sold into slavery, uh, that he would, he would be exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world. And as, as Pharaoh and Egypt, in Genesis at least, uh, take care of and watch over Israel, they watch over God's people, make provisions for them, they are richly blessed. We see uh, in these chapters that, that God causes a famine to come upon the land, and and all the people of the earth come and, and, and rally around Egypt, and, and Egypt is able to sell grain and sell food and, and, and really become a, the world superpower uh, through this providence of God. He is blessing this nation that is being a blessing to God's people. And then we will also see that 
as God has built up this nation, that, that as they begin to become those who would curse God's people in the book of Exodus, that God will certainly curse them as well. But nonetheless, his primary dealings are those of protecting and preserving his people. So we learn that about God in this section, that he's a covenant keeper. We also learn about the, or the, the Israelites learn about themselves in this section, that, that they are aliens, that they are not where they belong. They have wound up through uh, the providence of God, uh, bringing about his eternal purposes. They've wound up in a land that is not their home. They've wound up in a place that they don't belong, that ultimately they need to be rescued from. And they learn where they're going. We learn one last thing about where we're going. So we've learned that we're to spread through all the earth, but ultimately we're actually heading to the promised land. And we learn that that promised land is actually not here on earth. And we see this in actually the closing verses of Genesis chapter 50. Genesis 50, beginning in verse 22. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children to, of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that, I, that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So Joseph de demonstrates here at the end of the book a, a reminder that this land that we currently inhabit, and this is true of us today as well, is not our home. It is not what God has for us. God will be faithful to bring about his covenant promises. But these covenant promises, even in this early section of Scripture, go beyond this world as well. Notice what he says in the next verse. Then, verse 25, Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my carry up my bones from here. The promised land that Joseph is looking forward to is the hope of the resurrection. He is looking to something that will go beyond his life. He is looking to the new heavens and the new earth. He is looking to eternity, dwelling with God. That's who you are as well. Galatians 3.29 says that you are looking for the same promised land that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were. Hebrews chapter 11 says that, that they're looking for the new heavens and the new earth. They're looking for the city whose maker and builder is God. And even though Abraham is born again, even though he's redeemed, he's still looking for something more. And so are we. How do we get to the new heavens and the new earth? How do we get to dwell with God forever? How do we get access to the tree of life that was cut off from us in Genesis chapter 3 at the end? Well, of course, you know the answer is Jesus Jesus is the seed of the woman that's promised in Genesis 3.15 that will crush the head of the serpent that brought us brought in the fall. Jesus is the 
long-awaited offspring of Abraham. When, when Abraham says, I will make of you a great nation and kings will come forth from you. He's speaking of the Lord Jesus. And that's why Matthew begins his gospel. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham. The one in whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. Every tribe and tongue will be blessed through Jesus. And Jesus is the king that is promised in Jacob's prophecy at the end of Genesis in chapter 49 verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until the tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Jesus is the king that will come from the tribe of Judah. Jesus is the way to redemption, but he's also the way to eternity. And so we'll look at that unfold through the next uh, 65 books of the Bible. God bless. Lord in heaven, we do give thanks to you for your word, for the promises that it makes that are true for here and now, but are true for even beyond here and now. We pray, Father, that you would help us to long not just to know Jesus, but to to dwell with him. That we would look forward to the day when there would be a shout from the throne, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will be with them as their God, and they will be his people. Let us be those people. Let us grow in our understanding that you are the Lord and giver of life, that you are the covenant-making God and you're the covenant-keeping God, and that while we are the fallen sons and daughters of Adam, that we are also your chosen people. And while we wander in this as aliens and pilgrims in this world, we do have hope of the promised land, of the new Jerusalem, of the new heavens and the new earth. Keep us ever fixed on that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.